Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, I'm a little under under the weather, so apologies uh, if my voice is coming through a little bit different this week. Uh, but other than that, it's it's a great time of year to be out here in Arizona. Pitchers and catchers are reporting. I'm really close to World Baseball Classic games, to spring training games, really close to baseball being back. I'm stoked. How are you doing lately? I'm feeling the same way. It's good to see, you know, lots of greeny footage from iPhones through like chain link fences. Like, oh, look at that guy. Yeah. So it's always good to see. It's like the uh, the beginning of spring, even though it's still winter. It's beginning. It's like the you know the shoots are starting to pop up out of the ground. Um, I actually watched a, a college baseball game on TV last night. Um, GCU against uh, Tennessee is a really good one, and so that's starting to happen. Like, oh, there's actual games on TV! Yay! So anyway, I'm feeling good. Yeah, I saw bits and pieces of that one too. That was GCU's first ever, if I if I'm not mistaken, their first ever nationally televised home game, and they beat the number two team in the country. That was cool. Yeah, yeah, a couple of their players. Like, I'm finding myself looking at it from a scouting perspective. Like, oh, that guy's got some skills. That guy's got some tools. You know? Yeah, very fun time of year. I'm I'm very excited to get back into all of this, uh, but we still do have the last little bits and pieces of the off season to get through here. Um, it, there's been a little bit of movement on the trade front, a little bit of movement on the free agent front. The last few guys getting scooped up, mostly some noise with extensions, uh, whether it's, you know, avoiding arbitration with a multi-year deal or some legitimate extensions. And we'll get into all of that this week. Uh, but one thing to that we mentioned on the last episode um, that we want to just reiterate again as to why some of this activity is happening is because we are now at spring training. Teams now have the option to shift guys to the 60-day injured list, and that just makes it easier to justify signing. You know, Robbie Grossman signed with the Rangers. Well, I don't think you want to cut anybody of note for a one-year deal with Robbie Grossman, but right. if you just get to shift a guy to the 60-day injured list and then, oh, Robbie takes that guy's spot on the roster, there you go. Easy to do. Mm-hmm. So... Lots of activity along those like roster fringe type guys. There are still a couple more notable names out there. The biggest one probably being Jerks of Profar. And it's it's kind of a weird case with him where I don't know specifically where he lands, but at the same time, he plays a few different positions. He could land pretty much anywhere <laughs> and he's, he's not going to break the bank necessarily. So, um, yeah, I wonder if he got some bad advice because he opted out of his Padres deal. Right. And I think he was owed, I want to say seven and a half million. So, the only way you do that is if you think you're going to get more than that. And this stage of the offseason, I'm not sure he, he can. And also, you know, from a skill set point of view, he's kind of a tweener. Like, he's not really an infielder, not really an outfielder. He can kind of play both, but he's had some struggles at second base. He's sort of not a perfect left fielder. He's not a power guy. But, you know, he does a little bit of everything reasonably well, but he's not like this super-duper upgrade over. He's sort of a super-utility guy who could just kind of plug in some holes, and I'm not sure if there's that much of a market for that kind of guy. Yeah, I agree. I I don't see a massively meaningful difference between Profar and a guy like Jace Peterson, who signed very early in the offseason. I think it was like two years, 10 or 12 million with the A's. You know, they both play a lot of positions. Peterson might be a better defender than Profar and, and have a little bit more defensive flexibility. Profar, a bit of a better hitter, but he's also been inconsistent. And yeah, he's a switch hitter. I believe he still hits lefties better than righties. I don't know. It, I, I'm with you. It, it seems, it looks like it was an $8.33 million player option. Okay. 
I don't know if yeah. there was a buyout there where it was, yeah. you know, it was only seven and a half million in new money or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where he lands. It, it, he could be the type of guy that waits for an injury and then, oh, okay, he's still out there. Cool, let's throw him two yeah. years and fifteen million and and bring him in. Maybe. I'm yeah, not convinced. So... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think he's another one of these guys because of his his you know former top prospect pedigree. He had his fans. AJ Preller was always a fan from back in his Texas days, right? So he gave him a job. He gave him a contract. And now, you know, Pofar's an older guy, never really made that much of an impact. So, like, you know, all the rest of the teams are like, eh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't say I blame him. And, and I don't think the Padres are going to be interested in bringing him back because they're now right up against the last luxury tax threshold. Yeah. And we'll talk, we'll talk about what put them there a little bit later in the episode, but they're at the point where, you know, if, if you're going to push past that last threshold and start incurring like the heaviest penalties, you want to do it for a real difference maker, not for a utility guy who may or may not be able to play multiple positions. And uh, yeah, yeah. Profar is not the guy you push past that threshold for. Yeah, exactly. Well, all right. Uh, let's get into a couple of the trades that happened. It wasn't anything too crazy, but one fairly notable one uh, and really just kind of an interesting challenge trade. Uh, A's and the Marlins linked up. Uh, two of the more active teams this winter. I feel like every episode we've had a, a, an A's trade or a Marlins trade to go through. <laughs> uh, so this is just a straight one for one. The A's picked up outfielder J.J. Blade from the Marlins. Blade at $4.2 million in median trade value. In exchange, they sent the Marlins left-handed pitcher A.J. Puck at 4.1. So it's a pure challenge trade. These guys were both early first-round picks who have not exactly put it together the way they were expected to. Puck had a pretty solid season out of the bullpen in 2023, but he's just been ravaged with injuries. It's really looking like a long shot for him to ever be a starter. And if you're just going to be a an above-average lefty reliever, not even a, like a dominant, definitive, late-inning type guy, it's really hard to just to accrue value, especially now that he's getting into his arbitration years. So, so that's Puck. There's obviously a lot of injury risk there as well. And, and then Blade has kind of stalled out going through the minors. He was expected to be a college bat that moved through rather quickly. Uh, but there's some concerns about his swing path, about um, if he's too passive, if he, he misses, it, it misses and takes, you know, easily hittable pitches too often. Uh, to be a successful big leaguer, but it's you know it's it's a trade that does make sense for both sides. You know you it, you kind of question it when the Marlins trade a guy who has above average offensive potential, given that they don't have any of those guys. Uh, but they did have a need in the bullpen, and if they've given up on Blade, then th- then it's no real cost to them. And on the A's side of things, if you're a rebuilding team, what's this? They talked about moving Puck into the into the rotation and trying him out there this spring, and I don't think that would have gone well at all. So why not capitalize on some value you have here from a left-handed reliever that you're not going to need as you finish last in the AL West each of the next couple of years, um, and instead take a chance on a, a former first-round pick, a guy with some upside who, you know, I, I have some grander thoughts about kind of the A's strategy that I've developed after thinking about this trade more and more, uh, but mm-hmm. I'll let you go ahead and give your take on all of this. Yeah, so it was definitely even in value as we as we noted, um, largely because both both players on each side have kind of seen their their 
the stock drop. Uh, Blade in particular used to be a top prospect, but had had his struggles. wasn't particular. He had one good season in AAA last year. Then they called him up and hit 167, you know, 277 on base, 309. Those are you know not good numbers. 72 WRC plus. And you might be thinking, okay, fine, cup of coffee. But he actually played in 65 games, 238 at bats, uh, plate appearances. Um, that's not a small sample. And I can see why the Marlins were like, yeah, all right, <clears throat> we can do better. And so I do think there was an element here of the Marlins basically giving up. And on the A's side, I, you know, we've talked about the A's before, and I know you're going to make a point, but, you know, they're chasing upside, but to the point where they're, they seem like they're grasping at straws based on their pattern of getting guys they, they see something in. It's a long shot something, but it's something I think they're grasping. Um, and, you know, and he also has six years of control versus Paka has four years of control. So, you know, you got to figure the timelines are going to match up to the other sort of pieces they've been picking up in trade. Um, I don't know that the, the the Marlins desperately needed another reliever, but they did trade away Richard Blyer in a recent trade. So maybe they could use another lefty. So, and that's fine. They have a little bit more of a sense that they need to win and Puck can help them win. Um, Puck had a decent year, but he also had a couple of blow-ups especially in the second half that made you wonder, you know, sometimes he's very hittable. Sometimes he's not. So he needs to kind of iron out those kinks. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> it's a fair value trade. Both teams kind of get something they need. So I think it's good. I think it's fine. Yeah. I'm not sure the Marlins specifically needed a left-handed reliever, but I, I think you could definitely argue they needed a guy they were more comfortable with in the late innings. And I know we, as you just mentioned, Puck had a share of blowups. I don't think he's a guy you, 100% feel comfortable putting into every high leverage spot, but they just needed more depth at that back end. Right now on roster resource, there are four, four guys listed in the closer role are Dylan Floro, Tanner Scott, Matt Barnes, and AJ Puck. And none of those guys are, are really inspiring me with too much confidence on their own, but between the four of them, I feel fairly good that at least one or two of them will We'll put it together and be a viable late inning arm. And that's that's clearly what right. they're going for. Right. Blyer wasn't going to be that guy, but AJ Puck could. Um, as far as the A's side of this goes, I I think I've developed what what the optimists take on the A's offseason and, and approach could be. It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain all of the value gaps in all of their trades other than this one. Um, but I think what you can look at it as is I think I alluded to this on the last episode as well that guys who are in the lower minors or even in the upper minors uh, but but these prospects who aren't necessarily blowing blowing up prospect lists yet but are putting together quality batted ball data through the minor leagues you can't just pick those guys up anymore there was a while where teams were you know the, the Rays and the Dodgers and everyone they were they were identifying these kind of future boom prospects before they before they rose up the lists because they were looking very closely at their batted ball data and and the quality of contact and looking at that more than the stats more than the tools and that time has passed now everybody is looking at that and so those players we don't get you don't get a discount for picking them up before they boom up the publicly available prospect lists you got to pay full price pretty much at the beginning because the team who has that player knows, hey, this guy is crazy bad at ball data. We should hang on to him and see what happens. And so those guys aren't going to come cheap. And so I think the optimists take on the A's could be that they they notice that they know that, 
and they're not going to pay that full price for these guys who haven't put it all together and might have other flaws that are being masked by positive batted ball data. Instead, it looks like they're taking chances on guys who have the supplementary tools with less inspiring batted ball data or less inspiring uh, offensive characteristics. So I'm thinking of Bladé here, who obviously has that first round pedigree. I'm thinking of Stuari Ruiz, who looks like he could be a five-tool contributor if he could figure out how to hit the ball hard. Uh, Dar Darrell Hernaez from the Cole Irvin trade from the Orioles. And uh, you can even squint and loop in Christian Pache here last year where he's just got the, the carrying tool is his defense. And if he could figure out the offense, he'd be a star. And so it's these guys where you take enough dart throws and on one of them you might hit and you might be able to fix their swing and suddenly you have that superstar that the A's need. So rather than paying, you know, full market rate to try and get a guy who's already viewed as a superstar prospect, you take a guy who has a bunch of tools where if, if you can fix this one thing with him, he might click and, and be that superstar and you're getting him on the cheap instead. So I think you can squint and see that that's their, their objective here. That's been their strategy. I don't think it's necessarily an entirely sound one, especially when you consider the struggles the A's have had with player development in recent years. I don't know if I trust them to fix J.J. Blade. I don't know if I trust them to make power appear out of nowhere for Asturi Ruiz and get, get his swing off the ground. They clearly haven't done anything with Christian Pache yet, so I, I don't know if it's a sound strategy at all. I don't think it is, given their circumstances specifically, but I think that's the best I've been able to come up with to explain exactly what's going on here. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of buy that. Um, you know, they, so if I can summarize your point, um, they can't get the guys who are already known, obvious, you know, toolsy prospects that are high on lists. So they have to jump the gun and bet on these guys who are not quite high yet and because they may have a flaw. And so they have to overpay for those guys and take the optimistic view that, okay, there's enough there to work with and we think we can fix that flaw. The 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 downside of that, the flip side of that is, well, if you don't fix the flaw, Christian Pache can't hit. <laughs> he's a great defensive player, but he can't hit. If he can't hit, he's a DFA this year because he's out of options. And so so you're gonna bust on some of those guys, right? In the hopes that maybe one of them you fix and make and, and maybe that one makes up for the other ones. So I get it. <clears throat> I think it's a bit of a long shot strategy, but you know, I think they've chosen that as a better strategy than just getting a package of Kevin Smith floor guys who don't have as much upside. And, you know, because then where are you? You're at, a, at best, you're mediocre in three years. So they've got to reach a little bit. I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Poor, poor Kevin yeah. Smith. Even his name <laughs> sounds mediocre. I know. Um, but, but yeah, it's along those lines and it, and it goes back to what you've said frequently where Billy Bean has said that, Hey, we can't afford to be paying in this, in this top end of the free agent market. So we got to get our superstars somewhere else. They got to swing big in the draft. And, and this is part of that as well. I think, you know, if, if Estuary Ruiz doesn't tap into some power, doesn't get the ball off the ground, he's a bench player. If Pache doesn't learn how to hit, he's maybe a bench player. If, Blade doesn't start to square the ball up and, and get more aggressive in the zone. He's a bench player. He's maybe a platoon bat. 
and then Hernias is is a little bit further off, so I can't really make any definitive determinations about him. But th- these guys all have that floor where you're like, yeah, they're they're just going to be a bench player or DFA or whatever. But I think the A's would rather have three of these four guys be benched or or DFA'd and have one of them boom rather than have four two win players on the roster. You know, a, a capable platoon guy. Uh, uh, you know, a, a low division starter in the infield. I, I think they'd rather have one out of four hit in a big way than four out of four hit in an unexciting way. See, the flip side of that is the Rays are constructed with a bunch of two word players, right? They got a bunch of Jose series and, you know, Yandy Diaz's and guys who are not superstars but are productive enough and they put a team together. And because, you know, as we know from the Angels, you can't have one guy or two guys carry a whole team. You can't have a stars and scrubs model. You have to have productivity spread out, right? So is that a sound strategy? I don't think it is. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think the other the other gap in comparing the Rays and the A's is that the Rays do have this fantastic player development model. And they can make these two war players appear out of thin air. And the A's have not shown that at all. So, I mean, that, that needs to go with it for sure. If, if just Estuary Ruiz breaks out and nothing else from these trades really turns into much, you know, maybe a couple of these pitchers are more of back-end arms and, and that's about it, then, yeah, the A's are going to be terrible still. <laughs> they, they need a lot more than that. But I think, they, I, I think they've correctly identified that it's harder to find these superstar these guys that could be superstars than it is to find guys that you can shape into a, a lower division starter or platoon guy or whatever and, and do what the rays have done now do i do i think that they're the team that's going to get that done that's going to turn these lesser names into starting caliber not exciting but but quality contributors not at all but I think they've correctly identified which of those two things is more difficult and thrown their darts more into that more difficult category. Yeah. The bad news is if they go over four on those guys, <laughs> yikes, they've traded away a whole bunch of capital, which, you know, could very well happen for nothing. <clears throat> um, yeah. It's an interesting roster construction kind of debate, you know, whether that's going to work or not. And maybe if you're right, you know, maybe they're on to something that could be, maybe they are being innovative. Maybe they are at the forefront. Like, oh, let's let's reach for these guys who are sort of pre-molded clay and let's mold them. I know that's not the newest strategy, but they're particularly focusing on particular guys with particular skills who they think they can mold. So, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, and I don't want to misconstrue this as, you know, I'm looking at this all through green and gold colored glasses, and I think they'll be turning it around and competitive in a couple of years, because I, I really don't. <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll hear a lot of arguments from people who go, oh, well, look at, look at 2012, and then, you know, after that run ended in 2014, they turned it around really quick, and they were competitive again in 2018. Like, that's a fairly quick turnaround for a team like this. And look, they could do that again. This, this could be the next core. I tend to think that those quick turnarounds had a lot of luck involved. <laughs> and especially that most recent one, it also had a Matt Chapman and a Matt Olson. And I don't think this current core that they've constructed has either anybody on the level of either of those guys, let alone some of the pitching they picked up that, that started to show signs a lot earlier than any of the pitching 
this time around or a guy like Sean Murphy coming up through the system. So, so I don't think it's fair to say, Hey, they, they did a three-year turnaround last time. I'm sure it'll be a three-year turnaround this time. Um, but I'm just, I'm just kind of grasping at straws here, looking for some way to explain all of this and give just the slightest bit of optimism to it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. We'll see. We sure will. Well, all right. There's, that trade it was really the only notable one uh just want to briefly mention a smaller outfield swap the reds acquired outfielder will benson at 1.7 million in median trade value from the guardians in exchange for outfield prospect justin boyd at 1.8 million and a player to be named later uh benson has been around for a bit as a prospect seems like he kind of stalled a little bit at the upper minors um looks like he was left unprotected in the rule five draft this last year he's got some power or i guess it was the the previous year he was left unselected um when there was no rules rule five draft last year Uh, he made it to the big leagues this year wasn't all that great um he's more of a power guy uh, but he'll get plenty of opportunity in cincinnati where he might not have in cleveland uh whereas boyd is a little bit further away um and this is also a 40-man related move brennan was on the 40-man boyd is not so just a just a, a swap you know the the reds have a spot for this guy they can take a chance on him the guardians swap him clear up a 40-man space and grab a prospect who might might perform similarly might be rated similarly but is a couple years away and they can they can wait on him and see if they have more in him yeah i think this one makes sense for both teams i mean i think they needed to clear uh guardians need to clear a roster spot as you mentioned uh they bit they have a bit of a glut um, both in the infield and the outfield. Um, and the Reds are just, you know, chasing upside, kind of like the A's are. And, you know, Benson had some good numbers at AAA. Granted, you know, he wasn't young for the level, so there's a suspicion that, you know, maybe he's just a quad A guy. We'll see. Uh, obviously, his MLB debut did not go well. He hit 182, 250, over 61 plate appearances, negative 0.5 F4. Not good. So, now... He has a history of sort of adjusting to the level uh, prior to that, so maybe he will adjust. But uh, I get the feeling he's probably a bench guy, maybe a platoon guy at best. But, you know, can't blame the Reds for taking a shot. Yeah, and pulling up their roster resource page, I wouldn't be surprised if he was penciled in for a starting spot. He is not quite, <laughs> but no, he's not even listed on their bench either. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so, like... so depth guy. I mean, Steamer yeah. projects him for 0.2 war, so that's a depth yeah. guy. Well, their current starting outfield is TJ Friedel, Jake Fraley, and Nick Senzel. Well, okay. So uh, <laughs> I, I, their their bench options are Stuart Fairchild and Chad Pinder, who's on a, a minor league deal. Oh, so I, I think the door is wide open this spring. If if, if Benson sorry. hits a couple homers, he'll, he'll be on that roster. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, the the Reds are something. We we talk a lot about the A's. Uh, yikes, Reds! <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> At least you know they, what they they're farm though. A couple big really prospects. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Just this uh, this big league team is kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you've got to give them more credit, I think, than the A's for their yeah. trades. That Castillo yeah. trade was a haul. They've gotten some other good deals. So the Minnesota Molly trade looks good now. I mean, they've been trading well when they've done so, and they've built their farm accordingly. They've drafted seemingly well. Anyway, I, I think their rebuild is going much better than the A's rebuild. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. They have Ellie De, De La Cruz, who's 
lighting yeah. up all the names and, and the highlight videos. Uh, good system there. Um, yeah. I, I think it would be safe to say they'll return to contention maybe a little bit quicker than the A's will. Yeah, just um, checking our, our prospect values on the team bases. They are the fourth best farm system in baseball, according to the way we model. So not bad. Yeah, that's how you do it. All right, uh, that's it for the trades this week. Uh, I guess there was a minor cash deal for somebody, Anthony Misowich. Sure, reliever. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, good, good for him. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But let's let's move on into the extensions. So we're into the spring. This is key time of year for this. A lot of these guys like to hammer these extensions out before uh, the regular season starts. Uh, also, a lot of them have to do with arbitration hearings that. Are, are coming and going here these past couple weeks. Uh, but first, let's start with one that really caught everyone off guard, and I still haven't quite wrapped my head around it, and I'm hoping that by talking to you about it, John, I can I can make some more sense of it. Uh, but you, Darvish, the Padres, uh, he receives a six-year, $108 million extension, and that's, that's just tacking five years and $90 million onto his current contract. He was in his last year of team control. But that's a lot of money and a lot of years for a guy who is getting up there. <laughs> He's going to be 36 this year. He, he might already be 36, but this is his age 36 season. And he just got handed a six-year deal. And it doesn't quite feel the same as a lot of these other larger contracts that we've seen this last offseason where guys are, where they're very clearly extending out. Uh, the contract just so they can spread out the lower the AAV and spread out the uh, luxury tax hit. This doesn't quite feel like that because it's still a pretty high guarantee. I feel like, and, and Darvish is excellent. Don't get me wrong at all. He's, he's put together a fantastic career. He's had, you know, a little bit of ups and downs here and there, but I'd say he's pretty firmly established as this is a guy who's going to go out and be at least a three win pitcher, maybe more. And he's going to go out and make 30 starts for you. And, and you're going to be very happy with his performance by the end of the year. And I, I think it's also fair to look at him as a guy who could be in that next wave of, we, we talked a lot about Verlander and Scherzer and, and Granke to a much lesser extent of these guys that just don't age traditionally. You know, they kind of beat the aging curve. I think Darvish has a good shot to be that kind of guy. The flip side of that is he has tons of miles on his arm from, from both MLB and his time overseas. Um, but I, I think if there's anybody you could, you could bet would do that. It's a guy like Darvish who's had kind of a velo revival in the last couple of years. He throws about seven or eight different pitches, uh, maybe, maybe 10 or 12. Maybe that's more accurate. Um, but he's just, he's crafty and he's nasty. And so I, I think if there is a type of guy who could defy that aging curve and actually pitch fairly well up into his late thirties and maybe even into his forties, I think Darvish would be a decent guess at that, but this is still just a very large guarantee and a very long guarantee, especially, uh, I'm pretty sure it was reported that Darvish went to the Padres and just said he wanted two more years. And instead they said, okay, here's six. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the, the really, uh, the last thing I want to say, and, and the most interesting part about it to me was I heard this extension come through and I went, wow, that, that feels like a lot. And it, it this has got to push him underwater. Right. But it doesn't, 
Yeah. His his value was at 5.9. This extension puts his surplus back at 4.1. So that shocked me, and and I think you can speak more to what happened there and, and what the Padres are thinking here. Yeah, so a couple things. Um, so, well, maybe to answer that last question is, they basically play, paid market value for the additional six years. Um, and let me sort of explain how that looks on the back end of our model. Um, but he was a uh, really good pitcher last year. He put up 4.2 at four. Um, and you, if you model that out based on aging curves and injury risk and so on, um, you know, you'll see a, a decline pattern as it, get older, as it gets older, right? But the way they sort of structured the contract is they kind of front-loaded it. So in 2020, so this coming year, 2023, his value is basically 31.5 and he's making 30. So you got 1.5 surplus, pretty close to fair value. The following year, um, as you start to go down, we figure his value would be about 25.926, and he's going to get paid 15. So there's some surplus there, about 10.9. The year after that, he's going to go down to about worth about 20.2, and he's going to get paid 20. So that's right, pretty fair. The year after that, he's worth 14.6. He's going to get paid 15. So again, pretty close. It's only the last two years where it gets a little bit off. Like we think he's going to be worth, at age 40, he's going to be 9.4. He'll get paid 14. Year after that, 4.9. He'll get paid 14. So that's where it starts to go underwater. But there was just enough surplus at the top to justify the back end of it. So that's why it sort of didn't really change his existing surplus value. Um, it's basically a fair market deal. And the way they've structured it, it's front loaded and it's kind of tracking his value as he gets older. And given the points you just made, you know, he's a crafty enough veteran that he could probably get away with that. And or he could be one of these guys who, you know, can still pitch effectively when he's age 40, 41. I don't think he's, you know, in our model, he's not going to be that much. Like I said, he's going to be worth nine and then four in those two years, but he's going to pay for it. So <clears throat> but the front end up makes up for it, particularly the 2024 year where he's going to be reasonably effective, about 25, 26 million. He's going to get paid 15. So that's where your surplus is. And that's where that makes up for the back end. Um, so I think it's fine. I think it's pretty much a, a fair market deal. And you know, I think they made it mostly because they want to extend their competitive window because they realized he was going to be a free agent afterwards if they didn't. Yeah, they've really done something impressive when it comes to that rotation. Because you looked at it at the beginning of the offseason and you said, oh, goodness, they just they lost Clevenger, they lost Manaya, and neither of those guys were really a factor for them in 2022. But that's still two guys who they originally expected to be a big part of their rotation. They lost them, and then Darvish was going to be a free agent after the year. Snell still is going to be a free agent after the year. Musgrove was as well. Um, but they obviously, they extended Musgrove, they extended mm -hmm. Darvish. Snell's still on that last year. I don't, I don't know if he's a guy they're going to look into locking up. But then they've added this trio, and, and we'll talk more about Michael Waka in a little bit. Uh, but they've added Michael Waka, they brought back Nick Martinez, and they added Seth Lugo. And that's a really interesting trio of like swingman-ish back-end type guys who have performed really well the last couple years. And you wouldn't expect any of the three of them to necessarily be able to claim 30 starts a year. I guess maybe walk up, but, but probably not. But between the three of them, I think they can cover the 60 or so starts that those two last slots in the rotation need to. And that's before you even have to dip into any prospects, any 
you know, Adrian Moray Hones or anybody else down on the farm. So I really like what they've done with the rotation, both in terms of like, yeah, Darvish and Musgrove are kind of your 1A, 1B. Snell's kind of a wild card, but he was pretty effective last year. He's sitting in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then and then you got this trio at the back end that can kind of just cover it, mop it up, be flexible. And all of these guys except Snell are under control for multiple seasons and lines up with their window where I think next year, yeah, next year is the last year they have of Juan Soto. Machado can opt out after this year. We'll talk about him more later as well. Um, but it seems like their window is this year and maybe next year, depending on how that that Machado situation goes. Um, and all of these guys in the rotation really line up well with that window. Yeah, the four, five, and six guys do not inspire a whole lot of confidence in me in particular. Um, and like Seth Lugo's a project. He's a reliever. They're going to try him in, in a starting role, see how it sticks. He was a good reliever, but he got injured a bit. And so, you know, that's a project. Nick Martinez... Maybe, you know, at least he's somewhat uh, proven to go a little bit longer based on his experience. I think he came from Mexico uh, a year before last. He wasn't bad last year, but he's not all, he's not a backhand starter, right? So maybe he covers more things. Waka can, but he's also had injury issues and effectiveness issues. So you've got question marks on all three of them. So you're hoping that two of those guys cover, you know, the holes, basically. And I'm not sure. I'm not totally convinced they can. I mean, when you look at their farm, there's not really an obvious replacement. Ryan Weathers has struggled. Reese Nurse, just a depth guy. I mean, Jake Groom's not really the same as when he was a prospect. So, like, there's not really much to inspire you from the farm either. So they may have to make a deal at some point if they struggle. They do just have a cavalry of remember some guys here on their <laughs> on their non-roster invite list are you seeing this i'm, I'm assuming you're on yeah. roster resource as well cole yeah. hamels julio tehran wilmer font aaron yeah. brooks <laughs> wow anderson espinoza <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah <laughs> wow. yeah i know so, so maybe one of those guys you know can eat some innings i don't know yeah i i they're definitely quantity over quality as far as their depth goes uh but i i think Given given some of their limitations, you know, they don't have much of a farm left. And as, as I mentioned, they, they clearly don't have a real spending limitation, but they are touching right up against that highest luxury tax threshold. And, and I don't think they want to go over it unless they have to. So given and those limitations. I'll I, just squeeze in one point. Yeah. That's why they extended uh, Darvish for six years. So they wouldn't have to pay him full value for the two years because that would have been a much higher AAV and that would have put him over that tax. So they lowered right. it by, by extending it. <laughs> right. Uh, but given those those quote-unquote limitations and given what else they've been able to do on, on offense, you know, they brought in Xander Bogarts and brought in Nelson Cruz on a million-dollar deal because he wanted to be on the team. They brought mm-hmm. in Matt Carpenter. Those are significant offensive upgrades. And, you know, you, you can look at the rotation and not necessarily be thrilled about it, but when you look at those upgrades – on the offense and when you're expecting, you know, maybe a step forward from Josh Hader since he was pretty awful in, since joining the team last year and, and Juan Soto wasn't quite himself last year. And I think you can look at this team as a whole with a lot of optimism, even though they don't have the depth that you would like to see. I, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. They're going to get um, prime Soto though. I think I do buy the case that, you know, he's probably, you know, he, when you're traded, sometimes you have to adjust your new surroundings. And now that I think he's in there, 
I think you'll see prime Soto, and he's only what twenty three, twenty four now. So like, you know, most people pick uh, most players peak at age twenty seven ish. So I don't think we've seen the best of Juan Soto. I think they're betting on that that like monster season or two from him coming up. And Hater did get a little bit better after his rocky August. I think he got better in September, if I remember. So you know he's probably going to be okay. I say probably in quotes, but I think so. So, all right. And I didn't even mention that they have Fernando Tatis Jr. coming back. Oh, right. that's going to be insane. <laughs> this is this is a guy who hit 42 homers in 2021 in 130 games, and he's just kind of an afterthought on this team. Uh, granted, so, yeah, he's he's missed a whole season, more than a whole season, injuries and, and the PEDs and everything. But this is Fernando Tatis. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I'm very optimistic about his return. And if if you even get half of the player he was in 2021, that's massive. Yeah. So, you know, the optimistic case is this is a super team and they're probably better than the Dodgers if everything clicks. And even if it doesn't, they're probably pretty close to the Dodgers in terms of competitiveness. So they got a lot going on there. Especially because the Dodgers took a pretty significant step back this this off season. They yeah. didn't really plug many of their holes. It's the weakest we've seen them in a while, for sure. Yeah, but they have such a strong farm that yeah. you might see a few of those guys pop up and start to contribute. Yeah, it's it'll definitely be more competitive this year than it was last year. I think that's safe to say. All right, uh, next extension, the Astros locked up Christian Javier. So he gets a five-year, $64 million guarantee, and I think this is a really, really good deal for him. Uh, not not saying that it was out of line or anything for the Astros, and it's, and it's a good deal for the Astros as well. His surplus value went up as a result of this deal from 50.9 to 67, and that's because they locked in a couple free agent years and on the whole, the salary was a little bit less than you might have expected if he just went year to year, maybe. Uh, but that's obviously not how it works. But so, so the Astros did gain a little bit here, as, as is always the case with these types of extensions. But I think this is really good for Javier specifically. Um, he gets a two million, two million dollar, excuse me, signing bonus and a three mil salary for this upcoming year. Then his salaries go seven million, ten million, and then two years at twenty one million each. Those two years are covering free agent seasons and this is a guy who got a ten thousand dollar signing bonus out of the dominican republic and was really unheralded and, and we all know the story we heard it on tv every time he pitched during the playoffs in the world series last year it, it's really he, he wasn't a notable prospect by any means he got that tiny signing bonus and then he's throwing a no hitter in the postseason <laughs> or contributing to a no hitter in the postseason mm -hmm. um so just a just a really great story, a really great pitcher, and now he gets paid like one. And like I said, it makes sense for the Astros, but it's it's really it's nice to see a guy who didn't really didn't get some giant signing bonus or anything, you know, didn't have this stockpile that he was sitting on of cash and rather than ending up taking the, you know, the the Ozzy Albies type deal where he just takes the money that's put in front of him. He, he got himself negotiated a really strong deal. And there's a bit of, there's a bit of surplus there, like I mentioned, but that's how these always go. That's what the Astros get in exchange for the guarantee and the risk that they're taking on by guaranteeing these seasons. 
but I think Javier gets a really fair contract here and it's really good for him. Yeah, so he'll be 26 this season. So this is his 26 through 30 uh, five years, right? So so that, in other words, he'll be a free agent uh, going into his age 31 season, which is still like enough, of, close enough to his prime that, you know, if he still pitches this way, you know, get another payday at that point. So, you know, this is really a good, yeah, I agree with you. It's a good deal for him given his, you know, relative to his background, but um, it's a great deal for the Astros as well. So the farther you you farther away you are from free agency, generally speaking, the more team-friendly it is uh, because you have all the leverage if you're the team. And so that's why there's, you know, more surplus here. So, um, you know, to get a pitcher who can throw a no-hitter in the playoffs and he's only getting paid, what, $3 million this year is just ridiculous. Um, and as he sort of, um, you know, again, we talked about the peak age. He's getting near his peak age, but he's going to be at this level for a while, which minimizes the, the risk uh, from the Astros' point of view. So it's it's all good. Uh, I can see this is one of those deals where it makes sense for everybody. So I love it. And you could also argue that Javier has a little less mileage on his arm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's 26, but he was used as more of a swingman type. Uh, pretty much every season, including last season. Even last season, he made five relief appearances. So he doesn't have, you know, he has three seasons of of MLB service time, but he doesn't have 150, 200 innings in each of those years. He's up to 300 total across those three inning, uh, those three seasons. And so maybe that that helps, you know, and he's had kind of a gradual buildup. And, and so maybe this year he's ready for, a full 30 start workload and then that kind of pushes the timeline of decline and injury concerns back a little bit because he just has this lesser workload and so even if if he hits the market at age 31 maybe you look at him a little bit differently than you would look at a guy who hit the market at age 31 with six Mm -hmm. full 30 start seasons in his past right yeah yeah it's a guy who He's just seemingly improved in every way <laughs> across the board between 2021 and 2022, and he's he's definitely one of those up and up and coming types where you could see him just hit another level next, and the Astros want to get in front of that, and so yeah, good on and, them for locking him up, and, and good on him for getting his money. And obviously, the Astros are doing something right with their pitching development. I mean, these guys are coming out of nowhere, and they're looking nasty. You know, Luis Garcia was third in Rookie of the Year voting the year before this one. Um, obviously, Fran, Framber Valdez has turned into an ace, one of the best pitchers in the American League. And now you got Javier as well. And he, all three of these guys came out of nowhere. So that's just amazing what the Astros are doing. Definitely. They're they're still the model organization for that. And you know, we'll see we'll see how things change in, in this new era, the post, uh, post-click era with Dana Brown at the helm and, and really Jim Crane at the helm now. <laughs> but... Uh, it seems like on the development side, they at least have it figured out. And I wouldn't expect that to change too much. Um, They will be a team to keep an eye on over these next couple weeks. They've already mentioned a few other players they want to try and lock up. Kyle Tucker, uh, Framber Valdez, those are the main two. But they also mentioned Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman, who are under team control through 2024, I believe, each of them. But they want to further extend those contracts and get them, I, I, I would guess, in Houston for life. So Yeah, that's what David Brown basically said. He just mm-hmm. wants them to retire as Astros. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye on that for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one. 
this is this is switching back to more of our traditional just buying out multiple years of arbitration at once and, and that's about it uh it's the blue jays signing Bo Bichette to a three-year extension so this was his first year of arbitration uh this deal will cover all three years of that it'll be 33.6 million dollars guaranteed with escalators that could bring it up to 40.65 if we look at how his value shifted as a result of this, a surplus, it went from 94.1 to 87.9. So it looks like this is a little bit more than we expected him to earn over those three years of arbitration. Mm -hmm. But not entirely meaningfully so, just a couple million each year or so. Uh, he'll get, he gets a $3.25 million signing bonus, $2.85 million salary uh, for this upcoming season, and then $11 million in 2024 and $16.5 million in 2025. MVP bonuses, uh, yeah, so so nothing crazy here. This isn't some long-term deal that keeps him in, in Toronto a really long time. As I mentioned, it's just the three years of arbitration that he was already expected to be there. Um, but now they just don't have to worry about it, and that's that's probably a good thing for both sides. Yeah, so from the Blue Jays' perspective, what they're buying here is cost certainty. They're protecting against if he, you know, again, he hasn't, uh, another case where he hasn't hit his prime years yet, um, so he's still on the younger side. Um, he's going to be 25 this year. He's probably going to peak it from around 27. So, um, so they're they're basically protecting themselves against like if he shoots up another level in performance over the next three years, it would have cost them more. Here they're sort of protecting it and guaranteeing it. So splitting the difference a little bit, giving him a little bit more than he might have made in arbitration given the normal run rate. But they're protecting against like. A, a, an upside breakout even further and it's probably a reasonable deal for him because the other thing is he's gonna you know this is he's age 25 26 27 season so he's gonna be free agent going into age 28 which as we just noticed this offseason is still young enough to get a huge payday he could get a 10 to 12 year contract right after that so there's no downside for him for taking this it's a little bit more than he might have made in in arbitration given run rights like i said so why not? It protects his free agent years. It's a little bit unusual because typically uh, extensions kind of dip into those free agent years a little bit. This one is just guaranteeing the arbitration money. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't see anything wrong with it, though. Yeah, I, I'm looking at his page right now, and he's not a guy that I've necessarily paid the closest attention to. You know, he's he's up north of the border, and he gets a little bit overshadowed, I think, by Vlad and... And, and even by Springer, I guess, a little bit. But wow, is he consistent? <laughs> he's he's really good and consistently good. But I think you're right that they're the Blue Jays are protecting against there being another level to this. And I think there could be. When I look at his numbers here and, and just kind of the shape of his production, it really makes me think Xander Bogarts. Like, there's there's a lot of similarities there, I feel like. And, and I yeah. think Bogarts, you know, he walks a little bit more, strikes out a little bit less doesn't never really had the speed that Bichette has, but there's some similarities there in, in their discipline, in their kind of power output. They're not the highest regarded defensive shortstops, but mm. Bichette's still so young. If he taps into anything else in any of those categories, you know, if he, if he finds more power, if he becomes more disciplined, if he improves his defense, any of that happens, then he, boom, he's a superstar and he would have cost the Blue Jays, you know, maybe five or $10 million more in arbitration. And now they've protected yeah. themselves against that scenario. Exactly. Yeah. And keeping in mind, you know, if he has a breakout year this first, this next year, it would have 
maybe spiraled the following years because they tend to be based off of that you know precedent year so they could have protected themselves against an even further sort of jump in salary by by doing this it locks it in uh, but yeah i agree with you um i think he may have another gear um you know he had a really cold start in 2022 he was you know a lot of a lot of hitters start off a little bit cold in april because of the weather or just getting their timing uh, he was pretty cold into May as well, but then June, he started to turn around, July got hot, and then he was just on a tear the rest of the year. So, which makes you think if he had just gone on that tear for a full year, can he put it together for a full year? Oh my God, you're looking at like, you know, six or seven more player here. I think this is as good a time as any also to bring up Corbin Burns and what just happened there. Um, Eek, yes. Yeah, so some controversy. <laughs> um Corbin Burns lost his arbitration hearing against the Brewers. They, they ended up going to a hearing. It was over. I'm trying to find the dollar values. I believe he ended up getting 10.01 million. Yeah. And the number that he was shooting for was 10.75 million. So yeah. no, 750,000. And which year of arbitration was this for him? Was it his second? Uh, I'm looking this up right yeah. now. So... So yeah, if this was his second year of arbitration out of three, then you could reasonably say that, you know, 750000 that's not a ton for one year, but with what you just mentioned, that, that these arbitration salaries build off of each other, that could ultimately mean a few million dollars that this lost cost him. So not meaningless by any degree, and, and just on that alone, I think it's it's justifiable to be kind of upset that you lost, but he was very vocal, very candid that, he didn't like the way the arbitration hearing went. He was disappointed in his team and how aggressive they got and how how hard they fought that he wasn't worth this salary for reasons X, Y, and Z, that, you know, he wasn't quite the same guy in 2022 that he was in 2021. And they pointing pointing out all of his flaws. And I think the way he worded it was like blaming him for missing the postseason last year which doesn't seem fair to me that's for sure <laughs> um but so just just general general disappointment general bad blood after the arbitration hearing and, and since then we heard that he and i forget who it was one of the front office folks <laughs> talked it out um and, and got on the same page i don't remember if it was stearns or uh i'm, I'm blanking on who's who's in charge of things now that Stearns took a bit more of a backseat. Um, but somebody in the Brewers, somebody <clears throat> in the Brewers uh, front office yeah. ha had a conversation with him and, and cleared the air and, and things are good now, but it's still, we hear about this every year to some extent, maybe not to quite this extent with it, with a player of this caliber being this candid about how upset he is with the process. Uh, but every year we hear concerns about like, Oh, they're they're going to an arbitration hearing and they're going to duke it out in in the courtroom or, or wherever this occurs, and now you're going to try and lock him up long term. How is that going to affect the relationship there? We we hear that a lot, and I think we see arguments for and against every season. Like like I don't think the Brewers had a fantastic shot of locking up Corbin Burns anyway, just given where they are in their competitive window and where they tend to be with their budgets. But I wouldn't be surprised. I think you could make an argument that this damages their chances there, at least to some degree. 
Uh, but then there's plenty of other situations where we've seen, and unfortunately I don't have one off the top of my head, but there are plenty of other situations where we've seen players go to arbitration and then pretty short after, whether it's that offseason or the next offseason, boom, they signed a long-term deal, clearly no bad blood. They ended up getting it done and, and staying with that team forever because there's more to it than just, hey, this guy said some mean things about me in a meeting and, and cost me a few hundred thousand dollars. Like, that that's not the extent of whether you choose to stay with the team or not. So I, I think you can see arguments to it going either way, but I think it's it, tying this back to Bo Bichette, re- regardless of what stance you take on whether an arbitration hearing and, and all of that can cause issues, can ruffle feathers, can hurt your chances at locking somebody up long-term, regardless of how you feel about that, I think you can only look at, the Blue Jays just saying, now nah, we're going to skip arbitration entirely. We're just going to hand you the money right now. And uh, we'll talk more about a longer term deal during the course of this contract, but we're not going to mess with arbitration each of these next two off seasons. I think that's an unequivocally good thing for them and for their chances to lock him up longer term. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here with this Corbin Burns situation. Um, you know, but I think the consensus is don't, do this to your star player. Don't create bad blood if you don't have to. And yes, people are pointing out the it's you're doing this, you're doing this over 750k and yes, you know, it can have a domino effect on the following year, so it's probably probably more like 2 or 3 million ish difference when you add that up. Um, but look, this is your star pitcher and he's a Cy Young award winner and you know, you shouldn't do this. I totally agree. I am on that side of the fence. I don't think this arbitration uh, system makes any sense at all, frankly. Um, and I know we just got off a year ago with, you know, the new CBA, and this came up, and there were there were debates about, oh, let's just use data, let's use Fangraphs version of Word, so we don't have to argue about numbers. And so, like, they couldn't agree on that. They wanted the the, the players wanted a chance to make their case. So, to a certain extent, the players' union have a has skin in the game here and saying, no, we wanted to keep this because this is, we wanted to argue our side. Um, I do think there's a better way to do it. I actually heard Jim Bowden on the radio this morning saying, uh, talking about this, saying, you know what, takes the teams and, and the players out of the room and just have the lawyers duke it out. Basically what he's saying. And I think that makes some sense because to have, it's so weird. Like the actual player is in the room and he's hearing bad things about himself from his team. And then to go out after that and then join the team and say, everything's great. That's so, it's just weird. You know, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And, and yeah, so have the lawyers duke it out. If you trust them to work it out, then they should. Um, I agree with that. But this, this whole system is weird and flawed. And I think the more you can avoid it, the better. So teams like the Blue Jays who are locking their players up instead of going to arbitration, more power to them. I think that's great. Right. They also did this with Matt Chapman last year. Um, yeah, and there's, there's probably another example or two I'm missing, but yeah, it's it's best to just avoid this if you can. It is a weird process. I guess the one piece of I don't want to call it credit, but the the one piece of I guess like a partial excuse I'll I'll give to the Brewers is that it's not just the 750k and then it ballooning into a couple million. It's that the arbitration system as a whole is based on precedent, and so. If you let Corbin Burns just, if you just say, ah, whatever, it's 750K, Corbin Burns here have 10.75. Well, now that's the new baseline for the next time either your team or another team has a similar player to Corbin Burns reach this point in his arbitration process. And that leads to the whole championship belt 
scenario yeah. the, the situation we had a couple of years back where it came out that that the i think it was the owners were passing around a championship belt to the team that suppressed salaries the best in arbitration which is disgusting <laughs> that that's not good for for the sport or for anyone it's it's very blatantly collusive but it's kind of a system that encourages collusion because the more you can suppress salaries of your own guys the more other teams salary you know other teams yeah. will be happier with you who have players in similar situations or just yourself down the line your team will next time you have a player like that come around hey look you're going off this suppressed baseline so i agree it's a very silly inefficient system and i wouldn't be surprised if we saw it hit pretty hard in the next cba negotiations yeah just add to one point on that so teoscar hernandez also lost his case he was asking for 16 he got 14 um and you know that's actually the highest number that was ever guaranteed in arbitration in, in the hearing process there have been obviously other sort of negotiated numbers that have been higher but when you go to the arbitration uh, hearing you know and you lose and you still get 14 million that's actually it's, you know it's a weird stat but <laughs> that's the highest it's been but to your point there may be some industry pressure from i don't know if this collusion or not but saying oh don't go don't let him have his 16 because then everybody else is going to want that high number so because you're now at the top end of the arbitration number so you know i think that was the incentive for the mariners to stick at 14 and they ended up quote unquote winning i still can't shake the fact that this is a dumb system though you should not have an adversarial relationship with your player especially with a good one yeah i i agree it always has been dumb and i feel like every every year we point out how dumb it is and nothing ever really changes with it uh, especially you know yeah. you look at guys getting paid for saves and wins and rbis and it's like come on like yeah. right. <laughs> even even if you even the system itself if you look past that the, the the intricacies of exactly how it works are are stupid as well so i i think maybe this is an optimist take but i think we saw enough movement in the last cba and obviously there was the lockout and, and everything that happened there um, but I think the players will go into this next CBA energized by that kind of win on their side of things. And I don't think it's going to be like the previous CBAs before that, where they just kind of took whatever the league gave them and okay, we agree. Let's go. I think they'll, they'll push fairly hard on things like this and, and try and start making some more meaningful changes within the game. Yeah. It's a dumb system. Let's get rid of it. Agreed. Okay, uh, Phillies, they made a couple extensions as well. A couple of relievers, Sir Anthony Dominguez and Jose Alvarado. Uh, so Dominguez, he gets a two-year deal. I believe these, yeah, the, the two years were both arbitration, but he also gets a club option that buys out a free agent season. Uh, it's $2.5 million in 2023, $4.25 in 2024. $8 million club option for 2025 with a $500,000 buyout. He was very good down the stretch for uh, the Phillies and in the playoffs, he was one of their more reliable late inning arms, but he missed all of 2020 and 20 and uh, except for an inning of 2021. Uh, so he doesn't really have the largest baseline to go off of when it comes to arbitration. So this, if this seems cheap, that's why I, I guess it's fairly similar to Pete Fairbanks. who We talked about on the last episode. Uh, but he gets a guarantee, which is good for a guy who's dealt with these injury issues and the Phillies lock in a late inning arm. And then really quick, Jose Alvarado while I'm on this. Uh, so he, I believe they already went to arbitration or, or no, they didn't go to arbitration. They agreed to an arbitration 
uh, contract. And then on top of that, here I'm trying to trying to pair this out exactly how this is structured. <laughs> um, I, I believe he gets nine million. Yeah, he gets nine million in 2024. 9 million club option in no 9 million guaranteed in 2025 and then a 2026 club option for 9 million so that's on top of the 3.45 million he'll make this season so it's a it's a i'm having trouble understanding this okay it's a it's a three-year 22 million dollar contract if you fold in that arbitration year or you can look at it as a two-year 18.55 million dollar extension so either way it's it's they're locking up two of their harder throwing late inning arms a righty and a lefty two guys who were very key for them down the stretch last year it looks like i don't i don't want to definitively say they've fixed jose alvarado because he definitely still walks some guys he definitely you know still there's there's some some aspects of his 2022 performance that leaves things a little bit questionable and and, you know if he he can repeat that then great they just got to steal but there's 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 some parts of it that maybe weren't the most sustainable and, and we want to see what he can do again but it's still a very fair rate even if he does take a, a bit of a step back so uh, this is just a couple of good moves by the Phillies of locking up a couple late inning arms especially given their history of bullpen issues over the last couple of decades I guess uh yeah so <clears throat> in Alvarado's case it's basically a fair market deal so four years in our model of him um works out to about 21.8 and he's getting 22 so that's pretty much right on. Um, in Dominguez's case, there's a lot of surplus value because A, he's a more consistent and better pitcher, and B, he's not getting, uh, not getting paid as much. So um, three years of him is worth 24.2, and he's getting 15. So there's a 9.2 surplus there. So that's a good deal for the Phillies. Alvarado, they just they seem to believe in him. They're taking the optimistic case that you know they fixed him, or at least to the extent that he can be fixed. And you know certainly he improved his control so so they're hoping that can continue so if that is the case then they're fine um i you know dombrowski's gonna dombrowski right he's gonna pay for he's trying to build a world series winner so he wants to keep his guys locked in he doesn't care about underpaying uh he just wants to he just wants to go so uh, that's a consistent pattern with him but he's not overpaying dramatically for either of these guys there was a good quote from their owner, John Middleton, about basically saying like, hey, but no, when I'm when I'm done with this, when I'm done owning this team or in my obituary or whatever, nobody's going to be writing and, and cheering and praising me for how much money I saved. They're mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be praising me for World Series that I brought to the city of Philadelphia. And that that's obviously that's not his primary goal. He's he's still in it to make a profit. He's still a billionaire owning a sports franchise. But. Uh, it's it's refreshing to see things like that, especially when contrasting them with with some other owners across the league. Yeah, I I saw the quote like that too. Like no one knows how much money the twenty seven Yankees made or the twenty nine A's or the big red machine in the seventies. Like like he's right, you know, because you know the legacy is those were great championship teams, right? So that's ultimately the goal. So I I think it's wonderful. Agreed. Okay, so that's it for the extensions uh, that that happened i guess uh i think we want to circle back to the padres really quick though and uh, i mentioned manny machado has an opt-out at the end of the season he's uh disclosed that he will be opting out and and obviously that's got an asterisk on it if he went and tore his acl tomorrow i don't know if that would still happen uh knock on wood please don't tear your acl manny machado uh but 
as of now, at least, he is planning on opting out of the remainder of his contract, and uh, there's a gap here between what he wants in an extension and what the Padres are offering. So uh, he, he reportedly set a deadline of February 16th, and that has obviously come and passed. And so we've definitely heard before of, of guys set a deadline and then they agree to a deal after that deadline. Um, so take that with a bit of a grain of salt. And then there's also, um, they could always negotiate something during the all-star break or at any other point during the season, or there's a bit of a, uh, the, the signing dead period uh, at the end of the season before free agency actually opens up that they could they have exclusive negotiations with him and they could extend him then. So the, the book is far from closed on this one. But the uh, Padres were offering five years and $105 million onto his deal. Uh, and according to Bob Nightingale of USA Today, uh, that's $145 million short of what he was looking for. So pretty notable gap there. Um. It's, I don't, I don't know exactly where or how this resolves itself, obviously, um, but both sides should be fairly motivated to get something done here. I, I, I suppose more so on the Padres than Manny Machado. Machado probably sees what happens this past offseason and all of the big contracts that were handed out, and he sees a bit of a lighter free agent class in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, 2023 to 2024, where it's going to be Otani and then a very steep drop-off. Mm-hmm. And there's not a whole lot of overlap between Machado and Otani's markets. I mean, obviously, I don't know. I'll, I'll take that back, actually. So <laughs> so uh, what I'm trying to say is Otani and Machado obviously are very different players that fill very different roles. But I could see a bit of a conflict there with, you know, Machado or excuse me, Otani's going to command $500 million or whatever it ends up being. And so teams are going to be held up waiting to figure out what he does before they would turn their attention to a Machado. So I guess there could be a little bit of competition between the two on the market in that regard, but there's still really nobody else. It's not like it was this offseason where there's four other top-tier infielders that teams could turn to instead of Machado. Uh, he would really be the the guy for his position next offseason. So he's got some leverage there for sure. Um, and, and the Padres are motivated to keep him. They obviously have those luxury tax concerns, but their window is right now. And next year, 2024 will be their last year of Juan Soto unless they can lock him up. So it would be beneficial to have Machado on the team that season as well. So um, I, I don't know how this resolves itself. I, I would like to see him stay there. And I think it, there's a fairly decent likelihood of it. If you're the Padres and you're throwing this money left and right, I don't think you're cutting corners when it comes to Manny Machado. Uh, but very much a, this is all we know for now. We're going to have to wait and see what happens. So this one is interesting from a lot of perspectives. So first of all, from the Padres perspective, you know, keep in mind, signing Machado a few years ago was their first, well, second. (laughs) I forgot about Hosmer. Hosmer was the first one, but kind of a bad one. Machado was the more sort of serious, like, hey, let's be competitive again. Let's sign sign a big star. And they gave him a 10-year... $300 $300 million deal. Um, so that was like, okay, we're serious now. We're going to build a winner here. And and then things started moving and Prowler got busy. And so they started to build a winner around him. And because of that seniority now that he's had been there a few years, he's kind of the leader of the team. You know, he's been a father figure a little bit to Tatis and a couple other guys. He's 30 now. So he is kind of taking on that more sort of eminence grease role. Um, so 
it would be a shame if they lost him because he's kind of the core of their team in that respect. Um, having said that, talking numbers, um, they are up against the luxury tax, as we as we noted earlier. So if you look at that first offer, um, that changes his AAV over a ten-year basis from you know paying thirty million to paying about twenty-five point five because that would have changed his contract to ten slash two fifty-five. So they would actually have saved a few bucks in the AAV. Keep in mind, this is a negotiation as well, so the maybe could have gone up a bit. Um, his ask is way over the top. He's asking for effectively 10 million, I'm sorry, 10 years and 400 million, which is more than Aaron Judge got. He's not Aaron Judge. <laughs> you know, so like, I'm not sure uh, that's a reasonable ask. Um, it's probably, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I can see them extending more at the 30 level. But, you know, I looked at the numbers for that, that first offer that the Padres made, and it's actually pretty reasonable because he's going to decline. You know, he's, He's 30. He's going into his age 31 season. So you're effectively looking at his 30s, age 31 to 40. And so what they're doing is saying, okay, for age 36 through 40, you're going to be an older guy. So, you know, you're going to decline a bit. So they're basically saying, you know, 25 million AV for that particular or 21 million AV for the particular stretch of time was five years. When we crunched the numbers, I, I did myself, um, it actually was fair. So they started off with fair value basically for that. And he's got a little bit of surplus if you look at the five years at 30. So it basically didn't change his overall surplus number. And he's saying, well, let's get rid of the surplus. Give me fair value now, which he has a right to do. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. He's asking too high. They're bidding too low. Maybe they work it out. This is honestly fairly reminiscent of Judge. Both, you know, the, the age that he'll be at when he's hitting free agency and also uh, similar but not quite the same is his 2022 season like judges was the best of his career and I, I think that's part of it as well that if he if he this is his new baseline or something close to it and he is just going to be a six or seven win guy going forward then I think his ask I don't, I don't think his ask is reasonable per se but it's a lot more reasonable than the Padres offer here but if he goes back to more in that four or five range that he seemed to hover for a good point of it, 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 he, he has had multiple seasons of six wins or more don't get me wrong but he's also had some down years and a bit of an up and down career so so if you're looking at his 21 2021 season where he was very good but worth 4.3 wins above replacement according to fan graphs compared to his 2022 season where he was worth 7.4 depending on which one of you guys those guys you think the real Machado is that drastically impacts how you expect him to age and how much you expect him to be worth on the back half of that deal so I think it could be a case like Judge where they can't line up on anything now but once you see what happens in 2023 if he repeats the 7.4 win season then I think the Padres will have to pay up and keep him there if he slides back to that 4.3 kind of range then I think they can negotiate something a little bit more reasonable for both sides i i could see it being a hey show us what you can do in 2023 and we'll figure it out from there well so the pressure is now on him right because he's basically announced to the world i'm out of here after 2023 i'm open for business after that so in order to present his case he's got to have something closer to that seven more season because you know it's his walk here effectively and you do see a lot of evidence the guys in their walk years do step it up 
you know, sometimes bad luck happens, sometimes there's an injury or whatever, but he's really, I think, motivated to step it up because he's announced basically to the world that, hey, <laughs> I, I deserve these big bucks. So he's going to have to show it. Absolutely. And we obviously saw how well that worked for Aaron Judge. I, I'm mm-hmm. not going to say that's how it happens every time. I think there's, there's a lot that goes into the season that Aaron Judge just had. And if, uh, if Machado goes out here shooting for 63 homers, I'll, I'll be <laughs> blown away. <laughs> but yeah, it, it worked well for Judge. I, I don't think it's unreasonable to see Machado seeing that how that worked out for judge and how much more he earned from that and kind of getting the, the dollar signs in his eyes and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to do that. And Machado's a confident guy. That's, that's yeah. never not been the case. That's always been very apparent when watching him play. Yeah. Okay. Last bit on the Padres. I touched on this earlier, but the Michael Waka contract, uh, very, very unique structure. Um, we've seen, I guess we've seen things like this here and there. They're becoming more frequent, but uh, not not to this extent, I don't think. It's, it's it's okay. So it's a $4 million salary in 2023 with a $3.5 million signing bonus. So it was actually announced by the Padres as a one-year deal, which is kind of funny given everything that's going on here. So it's, it's intents and purposes, one year, $7.5 million for 2023. After that, and I, I saw a very funny flowchart created for this deal on Twitter. Um, but after after 2023, the Padres have to decide whether they're picking up $16 million options for 2024 and 2025. And they have to do both at once. So it's basically a two-year... The, the Padres have to decide if they want to bring him back for two years and $32 million. If the team decides not to, then Waka... And, and, he gets to decide these one at a time instead of um, all at once like the Padres have to. He gets a $6.5 million player option for 2024 and then two $6 million player options for 2025 and 2026. So the way this works out for the luxury tax, player options are guaranteed. They're considered guaranteed in luxury tax calculations. So this when viewing it from that luxury tax perspective is a four year, $26 million guarantee. So do the math on that. It's a little over 6 million a year uh, as the uh, AAV for the luxury tax hit. And there's some incentives in here and all that, whatever. So as of right now, it's a $6 million luxury tax hit. And if Waka performs to the extent that the Padres um, want to just lock him up, for, and, and guarantee him for these next two seasons, don't give him the option of heading to free agency, then he it'll become a new... I, I believe this is how it works. It becomes a new two-year $32 million contract, and in 2024, 2025, becomes a $16 million luxury tax hit. So it's this... We've seen similar-ish contracts the last few years of... You know, if you perform, you're going to earn your money. And if you don't perform as well, you're still going to have a baseline amount. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the biggest example that comes to mind is the Julio contract, where mm-hmm. if he hits the MVP bonuses and everything, then boom, he triggers a higher level of his contract. Um, and there have been a handful of other examples as well. But none that, as far as I remember, that are so directly and clearly directly linked to the luxury tax which makes this one really interesting and makes me wonder if we're going to see more of this. It's, it's this weird 
dichotomy of in the last CBA, um, a huge point of contention between the players and the owners was the luxury tax threshold and the players wanted it pushed up and the owners didn't want it pushed up as high. But now that it was pushed up to kind of a, they, they kind of found a happy medium there to, to push up the luxury tax threshold. But now that it was, we see multiple owners just wheeling and dealing their way to just, just snip under it. Right. <laughs> like, like the like like the ownership as a whole, all thirty teams didn't want this thing pushed up way high, but it's very clear that teams like the Padres, they wanted it a little bit higher, <laughs> and now that it's not as high as maybe they would like it, they're having to get really creative to fit under this limit and not cost themselves extra money, which I, I guess is how it's supposed to function. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, we talked about the rotation earlier, and they needed another arm. Waka is probably the more reliable of the options they have. Who knows if Lugo is going to succeed as a starter. But anyway, so look at the numbers of, I find this almost laughable, to be honest, because there's no way in hell Michael Waka at this age, after this track record, is going to be worth $16 million a year, $32 million total for a 24 and 25. There's just no way. They could have thrown out $100 million. They could throw out any number. He's not worth that. In our model, He's worth seven in 2023, and he's getting 7.5, so pretty close. In 2024, he's going to be worth 6.3. And at this point, he starts to go down because he's getting an, old, he's an older guy in his 30s. So the next three years look like this for us in our model. 6.3, 4.4, and 2.4. And so what, what that means is there's no way in hell he sniffs 16 million a year from the Padres' standpoint. So that means he's going to exercise his player option most likely. So 6.3 in 2024 against 6.5. Okay, he'll take that, 6.5. And then as he goes down, theoretically, in value, as he gets older, the 6 and the 6 seem to make sense as well. So he's probably going to get, most likely scenarios, he's probably going to get $26 million over four years as those things play out. That's the way we've modeled it right now. It's a little bit uh, of an overpay for Preller, but not so much, and he's worked it out so that the luxury tax benefit kind of makes it happen so i think it's a smart deal from from the padres point of view even if it's a ten, slight overpay and who knows maybe they can fix waco a little bit maybe they're optimistic that he kind of had a bounce back season in 2022 maybe that'll continue so maybe it won't go down as much um it splits those differences pretty well though it's a pretty close deal when you factor in all those angles you know it's fine yeah i agree it seems like it makes a lot of sense and i wonder if we'll see more of these in the future or if this is just a very specific case of a team that's right up against that limit and doesn't want to go over it yeah. okay uh so i think one of the last things i wanted to touch on uh we discussed the left-handed relief market last time when we were kind of discussing some of the remaining free agents on the board and we talked about matt strom and how his two-year 15 million dollar deal with the phillies really seemed to be holding up the lefty relief market because other guys were holding out for this kind of value, and, and that was pretty clearly an overpay. And uh, since then, we've seen the, the I don't, I don't want to say floodgates open, but uh, we've seen the rest of the lefty relievers sign for the most part. Yeah. Uh, the D-backs signed Andrew Chafin. This one seemed low to me. It he is gets $5.5 million in 2023, and then a 750000 buyout on a 2024 club option for $7.25 million. Uh, so it's a $6.25 million guarantee. There's plenty of incentives. 
and there's obviously that club option, but he was really good. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe he opted out of mm-hmm. or declined a player option for like five and a half million, which mm-hmm. is the, the same as the base on this one. So weird. It's, it's weird that his market didn't develop the way that it seemingly should have. Um, and, and perhaps there's a little bit of familiarity with it. You know, he, he was on the D backs previously. And so maybe, he took a little bit less than might have been out there from another team to return to a team he's familiar with. But yeah, I, I'm scratching my head a little bit at this one, especially when you compare it to the Angels signing Matt Moore to a one-year $7.55 million contract. Right, right. And you can maybe look at the pure numbers, and I'm pulling them up right now. You, I, Matt Moore might have outperformed Chiefin by a hair in 2022 alone but when you're looking at track record it's hands down chafin yeah yeah chafin 283 era 0.9 f4 more 1.95 era 1.3 f4 so more a little bit better but you look at his last three seasons before that and he didn't even pitch in 2020 i think he was overseas uh but 2018 to 2021 more was worth positive 0.5 f4 total and over those past four years, Chafin was worth 3.3. So it's not even close. Chafin was just much better and has been much more consistent. And maybe it's a different shape of production. You know, Moore's a, a, a type of pitcher that is more in vogue recently. He's a higher velocity, uh, got a good curveball, whereas Chafin's a bit more of like a sinker, get some ground balls type. But Chafin gets his strikeouts too, and yeah, so I'm I'm still scratching my head a little bit about this. It, it's obvious it was always always obvious that neither of them were going to get the Strom deal, and that's kind of why they were stuck on the market still because they were looking for that and not getting it. But it's still uh, a, a bit curious why Moore got so much more than Chafin. So keep in mind this was 2022 was Moore's first year as a full time reliever. He had always been a starter before and frankly a failed starter for the most part um and even when he was in philly in 2021 he made 13 starts they started to use him more as a swing man but he was terrible and so something changed something clicked in 2022 it's his really is his only year where he's a full-time reliever and something clicked maybe his stuff played up um but we've seen it happen before in the market drew pomerance comes to mind a very small sample size of a converted starter who played, whose stuff played up in relief, and they got a four-year deal from the Padres shortly after that small sample size. And so I think with relievers in particular, some teams look more at recency and like, oh, you changed something. Oh, you became a reliever. Oh, your stuff played up. Okay, I'm going to give you more money. That I've seen that pattern enough times to know it's a thing, whereas Chafin's just sort of a regular, like, he's not a, not a hare, he's more of a turtle, like, do my thing, do my thing, and, you know, <clears throat> that's fine. Your thing is good. <laughs> so... Um, but maybe there's slightly more upside interest in more because he, you know, had this good year as a reliever. So that's all I can figure. Uh, but yeah, Chafin's a little underpaid here. Yeah, thought so. I don't have a great explanation for it beyond what you just pointed out. But I, mm-hmm. I think the D-backs are very happy to get him at that rate, especially. Yeah. They, they've had a ton of bullpen turnover this offseason. And uh, he could he could be a good piece for them if they are a bit more competitive than expected or... Uh, Mm-hmm. Or he could be nice trade deadline fodder for them for sure. Uh, the Angels have they've had a pretty decent off season, I'd say. They've they've done a good job of sneaky building around Trout and Otani. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
We'll see. We'll see if it pays off. But they've been at least they're doing something, right? Yeah, they've so. they've fooled me before, but. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last one to mention somewhat along those lines is the Brewers signed Justin Wilson. Uh, he'll be out for a bit. He underwent Tommy John surgery last June, but he gets a one-year big league deal with a club option for the 2024 season. Another left-handed reliever. Definitely a different situation than uh, Chafin and more, but uh, gets a big league deal, so good for him. I, I yeah. did not see the dollar value on no, this No, we one. don't know. Presumably okay. it's in the low. Um, yeah. I'm guessing in the it's, it's probably... Yeah, it's probably a low guarantee for 23 and then a, a decent club option for 24 where, you know, they, they see how he comes back from Tommy John yeah. and use that to determine whether they're going to pay him closer to market rate in 2024. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, wanted to briefly mention Frankie Montas is undergoing shoulder surgery. Uh, unknown if he'll be able to pitch in the 2023 season. It seems best case he'll show up late in the season. Uh, but... That's a rough hit for the Yankees. Uh, they have not had a lot of luck trading with the A's in recent years. Uh, they, they picked Montas up from the A's at last year's deadline in exchange for Ken Waldachuk, J.P. Sears, Luis Medina, and Cooper Bowman. Um, Montas was already dealing with some shoulder issues through the first half of the season, but cleared his physical, trade went through, and then he struggled with the Yankees and was hurt for them as well, ended up on their injured list. So... Uh, both he and Tyler Maley, who were, were kind of in a similar territory and following similar tracks all through last year, both of them dealt with some shoulder is issues, and they're both seeing them linger into their following season. Uh, I think Maley says he's fully healthy. We'll, we'll see how that how that holds up throughout this season. Um, but I, I guess this just serves as a cautionary tale. I, I think it's silly to, to go... <clears throat> I, I saw an article from John Heyman, New York Post, which is already... Yeah, we're already not off to a great start with a sentence, right? <laughs> um, but basically, it was kind of a nothing article, to be honest. Yeah. It was kind of a nothing burger. It was, it was just all like, oh, these guys that the Yankees are trading for from small market teams, they can't hold up under the big lights. Oh, except yeah. for Pedro Martinez when he went from a small market team, but, but whatever. It, it was a weird article, deeply weird. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's the case here. I think it's, I think it's still overblown and so self-important of new yorkers and yankees fans to do the whole oh he just couldn't make it in our city because our mm -hmm. city's different <laughs> I, I think that's really silly i think what happened with sunny gray was kind of its own thing and what's happening here with montas is the guy was hurt and still is hurt clearly and sometimes that just happens and i think more more so than it being a cautionary table tale of don't trade for small market pitchers it should be hey be very cautious when trading for guys with active shoulder issues. And yeah. I think everybody knows that. I think uh, just Montas's upside was enticing. He didn't burn the farm or anything for the Yankees. They gave up a couple decent names, but nothing mm -hmm. that that's, should really come to bite him too hard. And, I, you know, there were limited options at the deadline. So they, they took what they could get, ended up being not necessarily successful for them. Uh, but th sometimes you just have to scratch it off. It, yeah, it was a loss. It didn't work out. And maybe they get a couple innings of relief from him down the stretch and he's good for them in the postseason or something. Maybe they get nothing else for him. Uh, but yeah, it, it just kind of is what it is now. Yeah, they took a shot. Didn't work out. That's basically the story. Um, so, um, you know, they were in the Luis Castillo um, talks at the deadline. Obviously, the Reds got a huge haul for Castillo from the Mariners. 
So they weren't going to beat that deal, and Cashman acknowledged that. Um, you know, what's what's indicative here is he doesn't want to trade Volpe or Peraza. Like he's really, you know, he, they really like those guys, and they would have one or both of them had to be would have had to have been in a Castillo deal. So they've held they've held their ground at the top end of their farm. They're happy to trade from the tier below that, which is what they did with. Nesky to the Cubs and Waldachuk to the A's and so on, um, you know. And so they're making the. And, but you get what you pay for, right? So you don't get Castillo if that's where you're trading from. You get a broken freaking Montas. Um, sorry, I'm not. I don't mean to laugh at the Yankees, but they knew he was broken, right? So, but they took a shot anyway. Um, and the fans kind of like, eh, he might be broken, and then the fans are now upset because like, hey, we were right. And so um, to know you have John Heinen basically spewing what the fans are saying, um, you know, it's. You know, they took a shot. It didn't cost them their top prospects. So what are you going to do? Um, now, I've seen some other Yankee fans moaning about other bad trades that they've made and fire Cashman and all this. I think Cashman's fine. I think he has to take shots every now and then. They're not all going to work out. The end. Agreed. It just gets a little bit amplified because it's New York, right? Yeah. All right. I think one last thing I want to touch on uh, really quick. We are nearing that 90-minute mark, but... I saw this story come up on, on Twitter while we were recording um, about it's from Shidaviti of sportsnet.ca. So Canada, he covers the Blue Jays. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and link this in the show notes, but unique. It's it, the headline is unique. Matt Gage waiver claim shows off Dana Brown's creative side as Astros D- GM. I thought this was cool. So the Blue Jays DFA lefty Matt Gage, on January 31st, when they signed Chad Green to a free agent contract. And Brown was interested. Uh, Manager Dusty Baker was pushing to get the Astros a left-handed reliever. The analytics department liked Gage. And so when Gage was on waivers, the Astros put in a claim. But the Blue Jays had put Gage on release waivers instead of outright waivers. So Gage had the right to reject the Astros claim and instead go to free agency. And reportedly, according to Davidi here, he was leaning that way. Since earlier in the winter, he had turned down a chance to pitch in Japan, and that probably would have been more lucrative with him for him than uh, joining the Astros and hanging out in their minor league system all year. So Brown decided to do something that apparently just hasn't been done before, or if it has, hasn't been done in a long time. And he offered Gage a signing bonus uh, as a waiver claim. And once he confirmed with the league that it was allowed, he handed Gage a $125,000 signing bonus contract. He gets a split contract, 770K if he's in the majors, 175K if he's in the minors, and boom, he gets to claim Gage on waivers. So interesting. <laughs> I just thought that was that was weird. I'd never heard of it before. Wanted to bring it up. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, it's it's a sign of further... I guess, innovation by the Astros front office, even with new folks in charge. Well, it makes you wonder, though, why didn't he just, you know, you see all these, you know, PTBNL or cash deals. Could have just traded for him if he was on, in the in DFA status and basically paid 175 to the other team. Forget it. Um, but maybe there was something different about this one. Maybe it's because of the release waivers, and I'm not an expert on these rules. Um, but um, So maybe he couldn't trade for him under those circumstances, but yeah. Hey, more power to him. And you know, he's a he seems like he's a pretty smart GM. I have to give give him credit and give the Astros credit for hiring him. You know, he's the guy who really you know identified all that talent in the Braves system, um, for which they locked up 
you know, a lot of those guys, you know, all, you know, the Braves are sort of the, you know, the poster children for uh, locking up your guys early. And so building the core and then keeping the core. And so I think he's been kind of a creative thinker all along based on his track record there. So um, good for him for doing that. Yeah, I think despite everything that happened with Jim Crane and everything this offseason, he didn't just hire a, a mouthpiece for himself. I think Dana Brown is a clever guy who's going yeah. to run this team in probably a lot of similar ways that that Glick did and be analytically focused and make some more smart moves like this one. All right, that's all I have for this episode. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, just um, okay. So here we are. We're at the beginning of free, of uh, spring training. Um, there may be a few more transactions coming um, to keep an eye on. A couple of things. There's still a, a few free agents which we talked about a little bit. Um, but also, you know, we've touched on this as well. The the 40 man rosters have opened up a little bit because now they can use the IL, you know, to to put their injured guys on. So now. If your roster was full at 40, it might be at 38 now. So you've got two open spots. So you might want to use those two spots on a new free agent or might give you a little bit more leeway to make a trade. So there will be probably some activity from here from here on through the end of spring training as teams kind of work out these things and settle in. So keep an eye on that. Yeah, that and we'll start to see a wave of injuries as guys right. report to camp and oh my arm hurts and now I'm out for a couple <laughs> weeks, things like that. So Oh, Jacob DeGrom, your lad hurts. Uh, oh, surprise. <laughs> uh, it begins. Everything is new. Everything is the same. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates so until then stay safe and enjoy the start of spring training thanks john